Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is another episode of Transfigured. This is another Church Fathers uh, discussion with Hank. We are moving along. This episode, we'll be covering two Church Fathers, so you get two for the price of one. We'll talk about Hippolytus and Novation in that order. And for those of you who like a preview of where we're going to go next time, our next episode, we'll talk about Paul of Samosata. Um, you, there is not much written by Paul Samosata that you that we still have available for you to do your homework. Basically, reading the Wikipedia page or something is pretty much all we have. But I'll just say he's sort of the the last great, not exactly the last, but one of the great biblical Unitarian Church fathers. But the story doesn't end particularly well. So uh, just a teaser for for next episode, we'll be talking about Paul Samosata, whose theology looks. Uh, quite similar to mine. Um, but the church oh, fathers, we hope your story ends better. We hope my story ends better. You know, I hope I don't just magically disappear from history and uh, are left wondering about the fate of my life after, you know, having the first multi-bishop excommunication synod. Um, but anyway, teaser for next time. Uh, Novation and Hippolytus, especially Novation, certainly does not have my uh, theology. So Novation, actually, we'll cover him in the second half of this episode, but he wrote probably one of the best defenses of the doctrine of the Trinity um, in the third century. And it was also pretty clear that he was writing against someone who sounded a lot like me. So uh, teaser for the second half of this episode. But uh, first, we'll talk about um, Hippolytus. Um, so, Hank, do you want to give us some kind of high-level biographical facts on Hippolytus? Well, the Catholic Church, many consider Hippolytus the first Latin theologian, even though he was Greek. Um, it seems that he was a disciple of Irenaeus. So here we have the apostolic successorship, right? We have St. John, Polycarp, St. Irenaeus. St. Hippolytus. Um, they say he lived in, uh, in, um, in Rome, but it seems he might have been the Bishop of Portus, and he was one of the first church fathers that had a statue made to him, even though he was an icon iconoclast. So uh, um, a very interesting um, history, I think, obviously unclear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we don't know too much about him the the facts are are vague. Um, Jerome mentions that um, Origen went to Rome one time around 212 AD and heard Hippolytus preach. Uh, Origen would have been about 28 years old and Hippo uh, Hippolytus would have been 42 years old about at that time. So that kind of helps the timeline. We we more or less go in chronological order in our series, but every once in a while we jump a little bit back and jump a little bit forward. We're, we're doing our best. So Hippolytus is actually uh, about, you know, 14 years older than Origen, but they were contemporaries and actually Origen dies before Hippolytus dies. So in that case, we are still going chronologically. And um, another fascinating fact about Hippolytus is that in the um, Renaissance in 1551, in uh, they found a statue of him in Rome, 
and they figured out it was him because there was um, there were two things carved onto the statue. There was a list of books that had been written by this person, and the list almost perfectly matched list that we had of him by uh, Jerome and others. And there was also a calendar that talked about how to calculate the date of Easter. And if you did your math right, you could figure out that the date of the first Easter that was carved into this statue was 222 AD. So that kind of helped give a date and kind of both of those two things led to the conclusion that that must be Hippolytus. Um, so it, it's kind of curious. So who would have made a statue? Uh, maybe we'll read a quote later, but Hippolytus was sort of against icons and idols and that sort of thing. So how exactly, you can be against idols and icons and venerating saints and have a statue made of yourself, I'm not entirely clear. But um, it, it seems like he was very highly revered in his own community, um, at the very least, and was probably thought of as an important teacher or an important church leader or both to have a statue made of him. And, and it's also amazing that it lasted for 1300 years in the rubble of Rome somewhere only to be rediscovered later. Um, and uh, let's see here. Another another important thing about Hippolytus is that he was well known for his commentaries on scripture, and he was he was well known for being quite um, poetic and having really good and beautiful rhetoric. Um, in addition to being like a good theological mind, he he was well known for being very beautiful and compelling in his writing, and um, and that's one of the reasons why people think he had a, an influence on origin. He also had this very sort of allegorical, Christologically focused exegetical style that is relatively similar to origin style too. Um, and it was found in some of the church fathers that we've already talked about before him. So he wasn't like the inventor of that, but he, he brought it to perhaps a higher degree of um, beauty and, and perfection and that sort of thing. Um, I actually had one passage uh, that I wanted to read that sort of exemplified some of that beauty. Um, this is on a homily, basically, that he gave on uh, Holy Theophany. Holy Theophany is the um, event that celebrates Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. I think one thing that's also just interesting is that as early as the early 200s, we have church holidays throughout the year that mark important events in Jesus's life that are very similar, in fact, actually identical to the same church holidays that are still celebrated in some church traditions. Which church traditions still celebrate Holy Theophany? Which ones are those, Hank? Well, the church has been around for 2,000 years, the Holy Apostolic and Catholic Church, my friend. Right. And so, so this is evidence that that sort of thing where there was a church calendar throughout the year, and on the Sundays, there would be particular Sundays that celebrate events like Holy Theophany, and then the, um, the whatever Hippolytus was, maybe he was a bishop, maybe he was a presbyter, it's not entirely clear, would give a homily or a sermon on that particular topic on that day. And so this is, um, this is a, an excerpt from his uh, homily for Holy Theophany. Um, this is from chapter eight, for those who are curious. 
The father of immortality sent the immortal son and word into the world who came to man in order to wash him with water and the spirit. And he, begetting us again to incorruption of soul and body, breathed into us the breath of life and endued us with an incorruptible panoply. If, therefore, man has become immortal, he will also be God. And if he is made God by water and the Holy Spirit, after the regeneration of the layer, he is found to be also a joint heir with Christ after the resurrection of the dead. Wherefore, I preach to this effect, come all you kindreds of the nations to the immortality of the baptism. I bring good tidings of life to you who tarry in the darkness of ignorance, come into liberty from slavery, into a kingdom from tyranny, into incorruption from corruption. And how, says one, shall he come? How? By water and the Holy Ghost. This is the water in injunction with the Spirit, by which paradise is watered, by which the earth is enriched, by which plants grow, and by which animals multiply. And to sum up the whole in a single word, by which man is begotten again and endued with life, in which also Christ was baptized, and in which the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. So first off, I when I read that, I was like, that's pretty good stuff. <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I wish my pastor or <laughs> would sound that beautiful a little bit more often. Um, a couple of interesting things that we see is first off, the clear emphasis on theosis, right? Man becomes God, right? This isn't like man becomes members of the Trinity or man is just kind of absorbed into the being of God or something like that, but that when when we're raised uh, from the dead and we have incorruptible bodies, we will be divine, right? We'll be participating in God's nature. We'll have been made God in this sort of uh, participative and descriptive sense. Um, and how do we how do we start this process? We get baptized and the water from baptism, he does, you know, this sort of spiritual allegory thing where like the rivers in the Garden of Eden were like that same water that we get baptized with. And just as the water sort of renews all of creation, it renews us too, so that we, you know, move from the, you know, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through baptism. Uh, so, I, I thought, and you know, obviously there's some kind of Trinitarian stuff in there too. There, the immortal son and uh, God, the word comes into the world. So there's that sort of, you know, incarnational idea. Well, we can talk more about Hippolytus's beliefs on that subject. But uh, anyway, I just thought that was a beautiful passage. So uh, what was that make you thinking? Well, I think it's, so, we see something that we don't see today because we've separated body, spirit, soul, right? What he's doing is he's incorporating all that back in saying, God's gonna save all of that. You're gonna leave the slavery. When you're leaving slavery, you're not just leaving a physical slavery, you're leaving a spiritual slavery, you're leaving a soul crushing slavery and you're entering into a a, a new creation. So theophany is very important, right? And what it's showing, what he's saying is, hey, we can see what theophany looks like, what this looks like in, in the life of Jesus Christ. 
And you're right, we don't, I think that baptism occurs in a place and time, but it's regenerative. It's always, we're, 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 we're getting, we're to become more like God, right? We're getting, given, getting rid of things. So we call that penance, right? We're trying to, or mortification is another term. The idea is that a holy God cannot have a relationship with us in eternity if we're not holy. Mm-hmm. We have to be like God. Right. Okay. Um, and I think the early church fathers thought about that quite a bit, something that we do not think about as much. Right. Um, and that's a quite a. It, Hippolytus is quite a, an elegant writer, um, reading his stuff. He's quite good. Yeah, and uh, I, I, Protestants have, you know, a bunch of different views on baptism. Kind of on one end of the spectrum might be, you know, it's just sort of a, a celebration of a change that's already happened within you, right? That's relatively common in the evangelical megachurch. The actual saving is you coming to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and a baptism is sort of like a public demonstration of that or something like that, but it doesn't actually really do anything to you. But some Protestants have a very high view of baptism and really believe that the water is regenerating you and washing yeah. you and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, there's a spectrum of opinions in, in the middle and stuff like that. But I haven't heard anyone, any Protestants talk about how baptism makes you God. Right. <laughs> but here, here's a question, right? I would ask people who are more that the the water baptism is just merely symbolic right what do you make of the nicene creed what do you mean i confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins right what do you make of that because that's that that's what the early church right as informed by by scripture and the church fathers thought that baptism was yeah and of course, you still have the Orthodox and Catholic Church that still believe that that is the baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Right, and so that that's a good transition. Another work that Hippolytus wrote, or it's it's a little bit more complicated. We have a work called On the Apostolic Tradition, and it's basically like a liturgy manual from um, the time of Hippolytus. And it's believed that Hippolytus didn't like write the whole thing from scratch, but he maybe compiled and edited it and kind of got it into the form that we have it. But it sort of represents the liturgical pattern of an activity of the Roman church during his time. Um, And so it's very fascinating in, in lots of different ways. Um, I'll, I'll circle back to baptism uh, because there's a, one of the largest sections in this book is how to perform a baptism. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting is that in, in early church days, there was a pretty strong distinction between people who had been baptized already and people who were catechumens, right? Or people who were just inquiring, right? There's sort of these three levels. The inquirers were, you know, just kind of kicking the kicking the tires of Christianity, as a uh, as a as a seeker-sensitive megachurch might say. And then there was people who had begun the process of becoming Christian, 
Um, and these are catechumens, right? They're learning about the faith, but they're not yet ready to be baptized. And then there are those who are baptized. And um, in this church manual, it says the sorts of people who are not allowed to even be inquirers. And it says, uh, you cannot let these people into your church. You can't let pimps, prostitutes, idol makers, actors, charioteers, gladiators, trainers of gladiators, pagan priests, civil magistrates who wear the purple, magicians, astrologers, or cohabitators uh, into your church. And you can only let soldiers in if they promise not to kill anybody. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought that was interesting. But it also talks about, it, we've kind of mentioned this before, the early ch Christian church was hardcore, right? It was a big commitment and it was very distinctive from the world around it. And they took themselves very seriously, or at least you get that impression. And another example of how seriously they took things, you had to be a catechumen for three years before you could get baptized. Now, if you went to an evangelical megachurch and it was a baptism Sunday and you had an altar call moment and said you wanted to get baptized, I bet that they wouldn't make you wait three minutes before they uh, dunked you in the water if, if you were ready. You know, no, uh, you know, the goal is to save souls. So um, dunk them in the water as soon as they're ready. But in, in the early church days, you know, to make sure that you were actually serious and ready, they, they had you go through catechesis for three years before you would get baptized. And even then, at the end, you had to, you know, prove your worth. And so, and they also said catechumens that suffer martyrdom before they get baptized, get baptized in their own blood. So even if you didn't get baptized uh, and you were martyred before that happened, there was sort of a, a belief that, that your martyrdom did count as baptism. And so the big difference between a catechumen and, a, and someone who was baptized is that the people who are baptized could participate in the Eucharist, right? And only people who had been baptized were allowed to participate in the Eucharist. Catechumens weren't allowed to do that. They were allowed to attend other parts of the church service, but not that part. Um, and so, so here's, a, I'm going to read kind of, this will be a little bit long, but it's sort of the requirements of, of how to do a baptism. So when a catechumen was ready for baptism, their behavior had to be examined, right? They had to have shown charity to the poor and widows and a willingness to follow the commands of Jesus. Um, they had to wash themselves on a Thursday. On Friday, they fasted. And then on Saturday, they also fasted. And along with all the other people who were getting baptized at that time, they met to pray with the bishop. They received an exorcism from the bishop who would lay hands on them and he would blow in their face to exorcise them. And then he would seal their ears and forehead and nose seemingly with oil. And I think this was sort of like to prevent spirits from getting back inside you or something like that. And then they would stay up all Saturday night in a midnight vigil. And during this vigil, they'd be hearing readings from the scripture and teachings from the bishop and the presbyters. And they would bring an offering to the um, church service on Sunday, perhaps something like cheese or fruit or something like that. And when the cock crowed, the water would be poured into the basin and the bishop would pray over the water. Then the people about to get baptized would take off their clothes. Um, they would baptize youngest to oldest. And it seems like children, 
or at least young adults or teenagers were involved in this process. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the infant baptism question when I finish, but they baptize youngest to oldest. Um, the people, as they got baptized, gave a little bit of a speech on their own behalf. Maybe they told like a testimony or their story of how they got saved or something like that. That part is actually similar to an evangelical service. Um, and then an oil of exorcism was poured over them by the presbyter. And he says, I renounce you, Satan, and all your service and all your works. And then they go into the water with the bishop, um, and everyone's naked at this point. And the bishop asks, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And then they reply, I believe. And then they get dunked once. And then the bishop asks, do you believe in uh, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead, buried, and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, ascended into the heavens, sit at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And then they reply, I believe. Then they get dunked a second time. And then the bishop asks, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And then they reply, I believe. And then they get dunked a third time. And then they are anointed with a sanctified oil and they put their clothes back on. And then after everyone's been baptized, they do a final prayer together and they give each other the kiss of peace. And then they celebrate their first Eucharist together as a newly baptized assembly. Um, so first off, like this is, this is a pretty intense ceremony, right? That's, that's a three day affair, right? With fasting and prayers and multiple exorcisms and multiple anointings with oil at different points. And the Bishop is there and, and all those sorts of things. So they, they took baptism really seriously. And I think one thing that's also an interesting question is I don't think that they baptized infants at this point in time. Um, it maybe it certainly doesn't say that they baptize infants. It some it says that some of the there might be some little ones among those getting baptized, but they're still it still seems like they're able to talk, right? And and they've been able to demonstrate their behavior. So maybe I don't know as young as like eight or nine or ten or something. I'm just kind of guessing, but I think because they viewed baptism as such a serious thing, I think they thought that you could only do it if you were of age, right? Um, so, and because the church mainly grew through conversion at that point, I think later on the, the church, once the church is the re state religion and, you know, there's not too many new converts, I think that's kind of when a shift towards infant baptism happens. But I think in this early stage, the church mainly grew through conversion and not through birth. And so virtually all, and maybe even everyone who got baptized was at least of an age to understand what was happening to them. I mean, I think the, your outline of the baptism makes sense in the light that they were being martyred and persecuted. Yeah. So what you wanted as a church is you didn't want somebody to say, I've had a Jesus moment, count me in. Then all of a sudden there's persecution. What? Right. Because they might betray you, right? Right. And that, that was a part of it is that they could... Uh, you know, someone who is in your group that didn't like, wasn't really fully on board, they could betray you. And also the early church was very financially generous with itself, right? They still kind of shared their money and goods in common. For example, there's uh, in this book that has the liturgy for baptism, it also talks a fair amount about how to handle widow widows and that sort of thing. And widows would be given bread and probably even money, like an allowance or a pension or something like that 
by the church if they were a widow that was a baptized member of the church. And so there's this extreme financial generosity within the church community. And that you know, you don't want people taking advantage of that and, and coming for just that reason or something like that. So I think that's another part of the strictness of who gets admitted and who doesn't. Yes. So I think that off this, what we have is, you know, I would contend that the idea of somebody saying, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, well, we can get you baptized, right? A friend of mine who's a, uh, uh, a president of a, of a Bible college in Budapest, who's from the South said, everybody has their Jesus minute down South, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, means it's, what he was saying is it's not very serious. Yeah. Okay? And, or as another friend of mine said, well, you know, when I got baptized, I got my fire insurance. And I think a high, a high view of baptism would say, yeah, let's, I'm, I'm glad that you, you've, confess Jesus as Lord, but you need to understand what that means. That, right. And the early church might have viewed that more as the right time to become a catechumen as correct. opposed to the right time to get baptized. Correct. Yes. I, and I think that um, I think what we could see at least just to bring it up to date is we see regardless of faith tradition a moralistic therapeutic deism that has infested the church. Mm -hmm. And so you have complaints from someone from Bishop Barron to, 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 to others, right, that are saying, we're not doing a very good job of teaching our young people the faith. And why should we be surprised when our young people have some pretty odd ideas of what faith looks like? Right. And back in the early church days, they were going to make sure you understood everything uh, and were fully well taught before you were brought into the church. And another interesting thing that you get the impression from reading this document is that they didn't do any teaching on Sunday. The Sunday service was all about gathering together and having the Eucharist. And then there was actually a meal after the Eucharist, right? They would do the bread and the wine that was the buying the blood of Jesus first. And then they would have like a, a love feast, an agape feast as a community where they would eat a full meal together. Um, but they didn't do it. There wasn't seemingly any sermon uh, or at least not a long one. And the, the teaching, it talks about during the week and perhaps even every day, you should be going to your presbyters and your bishops to be learning the faith, right? And they would teach you. And so the, the actual sort of you know, what we might think of as more like a sermon or something like that, or the teaching or the instruction happened not on Sunday, and the Sunday service was more about the sacrificial meal. So, so that, that's another interesting sort of uh, uh, difference, I think, that I noticed. So let's stay there for a second historically, right? Again, you know, I've come back to this, and we haven't talked about this for a while because we were on Origin and Tertullian, but the Eucharist is the center of the faith. Yeah. Okay. And 
again, I would ask a lot of my friends who are evangelical Protestant, right? Why is that not today? Right. Why is that not today? You, here's an interesting tidbit about how seriously they took the Eucharist. Uh, everybody should be concerned that one who is not of the faithful, nor a mouse, nor any other animal should eat of the Eucharist, and that none of it should fall or be lost altogether. For it is the body of Christ to be eaten by the faithful and not to be despised. So A, you couldn't let non-baptized people eat it, and you had to be careful with it to not even let it like fall on the ground or have crumbs get eaten by mice or anything like that. Cause it was the body of Christ and you had to treat it carefully. Right. That that's uh that's not exactly a Zwinglian view of the Eucharist. If you're concerned about mice eating the crumbs. Which, you know, um, let's, cause when you're at a, 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 um, a Catholic mass, what you'll see at the at, at once the Eucharist is given is you'll be seeing the priest and the deacon cleaning all the elements thoroughly. Right. You have to dispose okay. of them properly. Any leftovers need to be disposed of in a way that is respectful Correct. of their trans uh, mutated uh, state. Right. So obviously, again, this is a a belief in a tradition that has been with us for at least 2,000 years. It's Well, at least this document is 1,800 years old. Right. <laughs> so, so we can at least say that. Okay. And again, just uh, I'll finish here. St. Hippolytus, who was taught by St. Irenaeus, who was taught by St. Polycarp, was taught by St. John the Apostle. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. I see okay. what you're saying. So I'm going to poke you. I'm going to poke you in your Catholicism a little bit. Don't worry. You can poke me. I've been poking you in your Protestantism sure. quite a bit lately. And, and for the record, I think you're absolutely, all the points that you've made so far, I think are absolutely right. And like, honestly, reading some of the liturgy, right, of, of this early church manual, some of it sounded almost identical to a modern day Catholic service, right? Like where, um, you know, the the priest says, you know, blessings be upon you. And then the congregation says, and with your spirit. And then the priest says, and it is good and just for us to do so and so. And right. then the, the congregation responds. And like, even some of the language, like though, and with your spirit, <laughs> right? That was even identical to, to the um, to modern Catholic English services in English. So um, I, I, I will say, I was reading through this thing. I was like, holy smokes. <laughs> some of this liturgical stuff is way older than, than I might have guessed. Um, all right, but I'm going to poke you a little bit. All right. So it talks about spiritual gifts. Um, if anyone appears to have received the gift of healing or revelation, a hand is not laid on him for the facts of the matter will reveal whether he has spoken the truth. Hands, laying hands is how you appoint someone to a particular position, right? right? If you make someone a deacon or a presbyter or a bishop, the whole congregation comes and lays hands on them. And that's how you like make them a special position, right? Um, but if you're a prophet or a healer, um, that's all well and good, but that's not like a, an appointed position, right? Is basically what it's saying. You know, those sorts of gifts might be distributed among the members of the community, but it's not like, oh, Hank is now a healer or Hank is now a prophet, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but prophecy and, and, and miraculous healing was still something that they sort of expected to be a somewhat seemingly regular part of their church life. And there's even another point in Hippolytus that's not in this book where he mentions speaking in tongues too. So the seemingly the charismatic practices of, of prophecy and speaking in tongues and healing and that sort of thing, which I associate, I'm not saying, you know, there are Catholics who do those things, I, I should point out, there are charismatic Catholics, but I associate those things more with uh, Pentecostals and charismatic churches. Well, uh, that's, thank you for the poll, but what's interesting is on our, one of our priests at the church I attend is an exorcist. Okay, so the only- How often do you need to go to him? <laughs> Well, my wife would like me to go every day. Okay. Uh, so the, the only two churches that seem to believe in demon possession, actively believe in it, are the Pentecostal church and the Catholic church. Yeah. I could listen to Catholic radio at times, and they'll have a priest on talking about demon possession. Right. And so, the Catholic Church also seems to still really believe in faith healing, right? Yes. It's common for, you know, that, that believing in, you know, praying for healing and that sort of thing is common, right. even in Protestantism outside of uh, charismatic circles. But it's like really actually common and really actually emphasized in charismatic circles. There even be entire church services devoted to healing and, and traveling faith healers and stuff like that. I've seen all of those sorts of things. So what's interesting is... The church itself still adheres to those gifts. They're just not probably as prominently known as they ought to be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to find out a year ago, oh, yeah, so-and-so is an exorcist. Now, if you said if, at my old Bible church, if you said, you know, John over here, he, he, he performs exorcisms, just so you know. What? <laughs> right? I mean, the average evangelical's mind would explode. Right. And well, and in that baptism liturgy that I read, everyone who gets baptized gets exercised, right? right? That's a part of every baptism is before you go under the water, they exercise you. Mm -hmm. I think like they're you know, whether or not they believed in like original sin and original guilt and stuff like that, or inherited guilt through Adam, you know, those sorts of questions are debated. But one thing that they seem to have believed in was like inherited, ex inherited possession of the devil, yes. <laughs> right? That basically everyone born in the world is born sort of under the realm of the devil and possessed of the devil. And mm -hmm. that you are leaving the realm of the devil through exorcism and then baptism to be put in the realm of Christ, right? And it's right. not just like some particularly bad people who have weird, you know, psychological symptoms are possessed by the devil. Everyone, in a certain sense, who isn't a Christian is possessed of the devil. So they had a very active spiritual imagination or, or what, however you want and, to And they it. had a very much of a black and white position, far more than we see today in the church, right? Mm -hmm. You are either part of the elect, or you are you are you are inhabited by Satan. Right. That was it. <laughs> the, those there there wasn't much in between. The the oh, catechumens no were kind of in between, but yeah. but even then they need to get baptized. 
And I think, you know, a lot of the, the sort of Protestant Catholic debate questions on are you saved by works? Are you saved by faith? You know, um, are you saved by being a member of the church? Are you saved by having a powerful Jesus experience and stuff like that? I think that one reason why the early church doesn't seem to focus on those questions as much as they get focused on during the Protestant Reformation is because for them, it was just all the same thing, right? Yeah. You got saved by baptism. Of course. Are you saved by good works? Of course. Are you saved by having faith in Jesus? Of course. Are you saved by having, being a member of the church? Of course. Those are all the same thing. <laughs> it didn't bifurcate, right? There was no bifurcate. Right. So, you know, I, 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 in the guy, you know, in, uh, in the discarded image, C.S. Lewis talks about that. There is not this bifurcation, okay? We did that during the, the Reformation. We bifurcated. Right. Okay. And it's also a little bit more understandable in a thoroughly Christianized world, right? Like what exactly is the difference between someone who's saved and not saved when your whole surrounding is Christian and various forms of denominations and stuff. But back in the Roman period, when Christianity was the small beleaguered persecuted minority, there was just a very clear distinction, right? Like the pagans did all sorts of gross, icky pagan stuff. And right. so then you stopped doing that stuff and you became a Christian, Right. So there was just this huge distinction between them and the world that I think meant that they didn't have to worry about all these questions of who is saved and who wasn't. It, I would contend right now the fight we're seeing in, in the church where you have a lot of the church being colonized by the, the pagan world. Right. OK. Is I think what you're going to have is a remnant. Which basically goes back to what the early church looked like, which was. No, this is what the, what the, you know what they're doing out in the world. That's wrong. If you're here with us, here's what you're you know here's what you're doing. Yes, you're saved by Jesus in grace, but your behavior has to show those artifacts of saved by grace. Right, and we're going to thoroughly catechize you to make sure that you are on board with us and not part of the world. So another subject kind of related to this that I wanted to talk about, and I'll poke you even a little bit more in your Catholicism on this one, is- You haven't done a good job yet, Sam, but yeah. keep on going. Is eschatology. So yeah. one of the things that Hippolytus wrote about perhaps more than anything is eschatology. We have a book from him that's called On the End of the World. We have a book that's called On the Antichrist. We also have a commentary of his on the book of Daniel that mainly deals with the end of the world and the Antichrist. Um, he, he repeats himself a little bit in, in this, these three books, but it was clearly a subject they spent a lot of time talking and thinking about and writing about. So I'll kind of do a basic summary of sort of all of these uh, books and what his eschatology was. Basically, the, the prophets, the apostles, and the teaching of Jesus all agree that there's a coming tribulation right? The four beasts in the book of Daniel represent the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then finally the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is going to be the stage for the return of the anti, or for the coming of the Antichrist followed by the return of Jesus. The Antichrist will be a Jew of the tribe of Dan, and he has a couple uh, passages that support that idea. And this Antichrist figure will gather together the, the dispersed tribes of the Hebrews and bring them back to Israel. He will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. There will be a seven-year tribulation period. 
Um, for the first three and a half years, there will be two prophets who are running around warning people about the coming reign of the Antichrist. And this Antichrist will not actually seemingly have real flesh. He kind of only appears to have real flesh. He'll have something like a fake virgin birth. I'm not sure exactly how that's supposed to work, but something like that. Basically, there are a lot of things that are true about the Antichrist that are also true of Jesus because the Antichrist is trying to mimic Jesus, right? Um, and he will do miracles. He'll be well-behaved. He'll be preaching good morality and stuff like that, at least in the beginning. And then because of his renown, he'll be made king. And then he'll basically, once he's made king, he'll turn evil and he'll start proclaiming himself to be a god. He will reign for the second three and a half years of the tribulation. Um, the, the, like seemingly his bad policies and the judgment of God will result in a famine. There will be a food shortage and everyone will have to receive the mark of the beast on their head and forehead, their forehead and their hand, which is 666. And you'll need to receive this mark to get food from the government essentially during the famine. And the Antichrist will then like manifest demons and dark spiritual power. And he'll even be have sort of like a dark transfiguration, right? Uh, and he'll be severely persecuting Christians. And then almost all Christians will either give in to the Antichrist, in which case you lose your salvation. You will be martyred by the Antichrist, in which case you will achieve a great salvation if you manage to make it through the tortures of the Antichrist. And perhaps a small remnant will hide in caves in the hills and forests and stuff and last until the second coming. Christ returns at the end of the seven years. So he, for those of the, I know that there's some, at least wing in my audience that really cares about these things. There's some people who believe that Jesus returns pre-tribulation, right? That's the rapture idea. Right. If anyone has left the left, read the left behind books or watched the left behind movies, right, there's this idea that like poof, all the Christians are taken out of the world and then there's seven years of hard times, right? This isn't that idea. Some Christians also believe that Jesus returns in the three and a half year period, right? Um, this is what's called a post tribulation return of Jesus, right? Um, there's the full seven year period. All Christians have to endure this period. No one is raptured. There's no rapture in this uh, eschatology, right? And then Jesus returns, right, at the end of the seven years, and uh, the lake of fire appears. The stars fall from the sky. The sun gets dark. The moon turns to blood. The heavens are rolled back like a scroll. There's a new earth and a new heaven, right? And everyone comes and gives an account to Jesus of their deeds and the righteous receive everlasting joy and bliss and membership in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And uh, the damned receive everlasting torments in the lake of fire forevermore, along with uh, Satan and his demons. Uh, so this is a super clear premillennial eschatology. Um, you know, it's absolutely explicitly clear that this is premillennial, premillennialism. And premillennialism is a teaching that is uh, condemned by both the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. The idea that basically there's a tribulation, Jesus comes at the end, and then there's a thousand year reign. So that, that sort of idea is only found in Protestant circles uh, currently and is, and, and is called chiliasm or millennialism. And it's specifically condemned in, in the Catholic and uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. And we'll talk about that transformation of eschatology. It really actually happens during the reign of Constantine. And Eusebius is a major player in that. But basically, I think 
when premillennialism basically assumes that the the evil empire is going to play a role in the ascendancy of the antichrist and the antichrist will use the government of this world to try and enact an evil kingdom but he'll ultimately fail and be defeated by jesus right things get bad before they get better and the government has something to do with it but once the government once the empire becomes christian this sort of idea becomes kind of unpalatable, right? Because it's basically saying that the, the Antichrist will be an evil Roman emperor or use the Roman Empire or something like that. But once the empire is Christian, right, you don't want to have that eschatology because it seems to blame some future Christian emperor for the, you know, the anti for the being the Antichrist or something like that. So that changes, that transforms eschatology into a form of amillennialism. We'll talk more about that when it actually happens. But you can see in this earlier period that premillennialism is still by far the dominant eschatology. And this isn't new. We saw it in Irenaeus. Irenaeus talked about similar stuff and had a very similar timeline. Um, Justin Martyr mentioned similar things. Like that. This was seemingly the most common mainstream teaching of the church was this kind of very pessimistic, the end of the world is nigh premillennialism with this pretty severe tribula seven-year tribulation period and interpreting prophecies in Daniel and the book of Revelation and other places to support that idea. So this is a clear teaching that's condemned later by the Catholic Church and is only currently found among Protestants. Not all Protestants are premillennial. Calvinists aren't, but you know, Calvinists, anyway. Um, but dispensationalists and other forms of Christians, especially in America, still hold to premillennialism. And I have to say, that does seem to be one thing that they have restored from the early church that was lost at some point in time. Yeah, and I've seen, I've seen, uh, yeah, no one goes harder against premillennialists than Calvinists. Yeah, that's true. Dispensationalists. It's it's fun to watch. The Catholic Church, yeah, calls it a heresy, but they don't say much about it. Well, you they guys don't, don't really talk much about the end times anyway. You guys yeah, are all don't. about just uh, having your soul go to heaven when you die. So who needs a return of Christ, really? <laughs> I'm poking. Uh, I'm poking. That's okay, Sam. That's okay. You know, you still think angels made the earth with God. So, you know, I mean, we'll... we'll Hey, hey, I, I think uh, that's somewhat undeniable. But uh, no, no, you got you got to have more faith in that than I have that it was made by the Trinity. But that, you know, but by by all means. Uh, um, and and I, I guess one last thing that I wanted to say, sort of, this is kind of related to the eschatology subject and sort of the intermediate state in a work called Against Plato. Um, he condemns the idea that yes. when you die, you go straight to heaven right? Mm -hmm. This is this is a Gnostic idea and a bad idea. And instead, what happens is everyone who dies goes down into Hades. But there's sort of like, you can make a right turn or a left turn as you're descending down into Hades. And, it, and the righteous get to make a right turn and they go to the bosom of Abraham, in which they're kind of with the other saints down in Hades. And they know that's how you know that you're on the right side of the future coming judgment. You haven't been judged yet, but you get a foretaste of the future judgment because you're in the bosom of Abraham. But the bosom of Abraham's not up in heaven, it's underneath the ground in Hades. If you make a left turn, that's a sign that a foretaste of the bad judgment, and you're with other demons and angels who are torturing you down there. And so you're you're being tortured under the earth in anticipation of your final judgment. 
in which case it'll be even worse after Jesus comes back and judges, judges you. So there's this sort of idea that you get judged as soon as you die, but everyone is underneath the earth, right? And then at the resurrection of the dead, when Jesus comes back, then you give your account of your deeds to Jesus, and then you get finally judged and get final eternal bliss or final eternal conscious torment. And for the record, he's very clear about the eternal consciousness of the torment. He is no annihilationist. He definitely believes in eternal conscious torment. But I also think, you know, okay, so what, Sam? Um, I think part of this is that there's no evidence from this period of time of the veneration of saints and of praying to saints, right? Nowhere in the liturgy, nowhere in any of Hippolytus's books does he talk about praying to saints. Um, and seemingly the only person who gets like counted as a saint that you could pray to is Jesus. And I think the I, I think that this is connected to the idea that the souls of the dead are under the earth, right? If even the righteous dead are in the bosom of Abraham underneath the earth, they're not up in heaven where they can advocate for you, right? The idea that you can pray to the saints is also connected to the idea that the dead saints are in heaven already, right? And if the dead saints are underneath the earth, you know, they might be having an okay time in the bosom of Abraham awaiting their resurrection, but they can't, you know, tug on God's, you know, uh, robe and ask him to, uh, you know, hey, my righteous friend Hank just prayed to me and asked me to tell you that he would like you to help him find his lost dog, right? Um, so this idea of this heavenly court that's populated with saints that you could pray to and venerate in some sort of way is not there yet. So that's actually another important ramification and difference seemingly between the church at this time and the church in later times. And again, I think a lot of that changed with Constantine. I'm gonna be very interested to see how Eusebius and St. Athanasius and others really changed the, uh, the, the course of the church in some certain interesting areas. Yeah. Um, with that, I think I we may be basis kicked you kicked you guys out. So I'm sorry to hear <laughs> say that. You know. All right. Well, speaking of getting kicked out, let's move on to novation and right. uh, and we'll talk about the Trinity and biblical Unitarians and getting kicked out of churches. Um, so uh, so uh, novation, he was born sometime around 200 AD. And then he died seemingly in 257 or 258 AD. Um, he was one of the first theologians in Rome to use the Latin language, right? We talked about Tertullian earlier. Tertullian was the first theologian that we really know of that wrote in the Latin language, but Tertullian was in North Africa. And I think one people one thing that people have a mistaken idea of is they think that in Rome, in like kind of the classical time that everyone was speaking Latin. But if you had gone to Rome, like any time between, say, like zero and 200 AD, the common language being spoken on the streets actually would have been Greek, not Latin. That Latin was the language of sort of like the elites, right? Because they were actually native and ethnically Italian, right? But most of the people in the city of Rome, there was tons of immigrants from all over the empire and tons of expatriates and slaves and stuff from every corner of the empire. And the common language, the most common language spoken throughout the empire was not Latin, it was Greek. So if you had someone from Spain talking to someone from Syria, talking to someone from Libya, the language that they would expect to have in common was Greek. It's actually kind of similar to like, if you go to Berlin, Germany, right? A lot of people on the street and a lot of the signs and people in restaurants and stuff are actually speaking English, right? 
And it's because Germany's or Berlin's such a cosmopolitan city. And if you have someone from the Czech Republic and someone from Sweden and someone from France, what language are they most likely to be able to have in common with each other? It's actually not German, it's English, right? But if you go into the countryside outside of Berlin, people start speaking German real quick, right? But only in like the cosmopolitan center of the city do they actually speak English. And I think in a similar way in the cosmopolitan center city of Rome, Greek was actually the common language. But if you went out into the countryside, they spoke Latin and the senators and stuff because they were ethnic Italians, they spoke Latin when they were doing their official senatorial proceedings. But, but the common language of the people was actually Greek. But as Rome starts to go into decline, which starts to happen during the middle of the second century or middle of the third century, excuse me, I think that, that Rome starts to lose some of its cosmopolitanism and that the native ethnic Latin language starts to become more common and more prevalent. And you see that happens probably sometime around 240, 250 AD. And so that's why Novation writing around that time is actually now switching to Latin instead of Greek. Um, so anyway, just uh, for the language geeks out there, they, they might have appreciated that. Um, he was a, Novation was an anti-pope. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> he, he was consecrated by three bishops in 251 mm -hmm. um, because he established a more rigorous position than Pope Cornelius. Yeah, so in, in 250 AD, the emperor Decius um, led a new persecution. There had been a couple of decades of peace and lack of persecution before that for a while. And then there was a new era of persecution, 250 AD, and this killed the then Pope of Rome, a Pope named Fabian. And so um, because there was this intense persecution, you know, they couldn't really get together as a full group to elect a new Pope. So only a small group of people elected a new Pope. And Novation didn't like this person who had been elected Pope. So he kind of rounded up a group of his own supporters and had himself elected as Pope. So he was a, a rival Pope to this other Pope. And one of the big distinctions between them is that the rival to Novation allowed people who had lapsed under persecution. That is, imagine you were brought into the jails and they said, you need to renounce Christ and sacrifice to the emperor or else we're going to kill you right? And some people would give in under the torture and threat of death and, and do it, but then want to come back, then they felt sorry afterwards and wanted to come back to the church. Novation said that such people could never be readmitted to communion. If you lapsed during persecution, you were never allowed back in. But the other pope had a more um, uh, forgiving, I guess, stance, you could say, and he allowed people back into communion. And so there was a schism over the, the idea of could someone who had given in under persecution be led back into the church or not. So that was, and Novation took the hardline stance and became an anti-Pope because of that. It, what's interesting is during his day, I think uh, at least Pope Cornelius was very harsh on Novation. He wrote a letter to Fabius of Antioch states that a catechumen named Novation was possessed by Satan for a whole season. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A deep and settled melancholy has fastened on his mind, and the Christians who knew him said that an evil spirit had gotten possession of him, and if he would profess Christ, the evil spirit would go out of him. So from hope of recovering his health, he professed Christianity, right? Then later on, Pope Cornelius sarcastically called Novation the creator of dogmas, that champion of 
ecclesiastical culture. Uh, but he did have his fans, which were St. Cyprian, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the future, and Pope Fabian, mm -hmm. uh, who made him a priest, even though other priests um, objected. Yeah. So it's clear that Novatius did, had, was a controversial figure. Right. Maybe there, even more controversial than Origen was. Right. And there were a lot of people who supported him. I think there was a lot of Christians. Imagine that you were thrown in jail and you didn't give in to the persecution, but you somehow survived without dying. Maybe you'd been tortured or something like that for a while. And you, but you made it through. And then there are these other Christians who didn't make it through. You can imagine that those sorts of people would feel resentful and that the people who had endured under persecution might view themselves as rightly more faithful and more exemplarily of good Christianity than these people who, who had given in. So there was a lot of supporters of Novation. And actually, Novation then starts a rival sect, and he starts spreading his ideas outside of Rome to other cities. There become Novationists and actually all the major centers of Christianity. And they actually they actually called themselves a word in Latin that translates to, get this, Puritans. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so they called themselves the Puritans, uh, you know, history is funny that way. Um, and, but what's one thing that's interesting about the Novations is that they had a gap between who is saved and who was a member of the church, right? When we were talking about Hippolytus, being a member of the church and being saved was the same thing, right? And so that's why to the people who were more forgiving of the people who had lapsed under persecution, they're like, hey, we're giving them a chance to be saved again. And isn't that what it's all about? You know, the prodigal son, forgiveness, new chances at things, right? Isn't that what Christianity is all about? It's about forgiveness. And Novation would say, look, I'm not saying that these lapsed people can't be saved, but the role of the church is to be a pure Christian body on earth, and they can't be part of the pure Christian body. Maybe Jesus will forgive them in the final judgment. I hope he does, but they can't be part of our church, right? And this actually mm -hmm. creates a distinction between who's in the church and who's saved, right? Because the people who are letting the lapsed people back in don't make that distinction. If you're in the church, you're saved. If you're out of the church, you're saved. That's why we need to be forgiving and let them back in the church. But novation creates a higher kind of definition of what the church is for. It's not necessarily just about saving people. It's about embodying the true perfect community, being a Puritan community. And so what's interesting is these novationists actually last all the way to the eighth century, right? So this, this is starting around 250 AD. They'll last for another 400, 500 years, but they seem to slowly go extinct. And actually during the Arian controversy, the Novationists in Constantinople sided with the uh, pro-Nicene creed crowd and were actually part of the allies against the Arians. So they were not considered heretics. They were considered schismatics, right? They had the same Trinitarian theology, and we'll get into that in a second, as, right. as the mainstream church. So they, they weren't viewed as having heretical beliefs. They were viewed as being overly strict. And who is Novationist uh, hero? Whose writings did he revere the most? I bet you can guess. Uh, Tertullian, right? Yeah. Tertullian was his hero. And, and also the Novationists seem to have blended with the Montanists, 
right? The Montanists were similarly, they had like a harder core standard of Christianity. They really practiced spiritual gifts and they had really strict moral behavior. So the, the Novationists and the Montanists seem to have blended. And there's also a group that we'll talk about later called the Donatists, which were also kind of a harder core form of Christianity in North Africa, right? Augustine has to deal with the Donatists and the Donatist community gets created for the exact same reason, right? There was a persecution in North Africa. Some people lapsed, some people didn't. Some people wanted to let the lapsed people back in the churches. It was the exact same issue that created the Donatist movement. So there's this sort of like this harder core, you might even use the word fundamentalist, right? That, you know, that's a, a word that fudges, but like this like, ethically harder core form of Christianity that exists as a minority alongside mainstream Christianity, and it actually exists for a long time. Um, so, and, and it was often called novationism. Yeah. And, and actually, we see that occur within the Catholic Church after Constantine becomes a Christian, where now all of a sudden you get something new called monks yeah. and hermits, right? Because mm -hmm. they're saying held it. You know, in the good old days, when we got prosecuted, persecuted, right? Things trying to where we stood, you had to be set apart. Yeah. Now you're part of society and we're we're not suffering for the Lord. Yeah, and, and okay. we've lost some of our vitality and our Correct. we've lost our saltiness. And there's this kind of fundamentalist wing that wants to maintain some of that early saltiness. And, and that's sort of what novationism was. Yeah. Interesting how that plays in the early church and how it's been playing, at least in the United States. Look at the United yeah, They're States. like the rad trads. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. The, the rad trans are, you know, they spend more time going after the Pope than, 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 than seeking after Christ, I think, sometimes. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's my saying that issue. Another interesting thing about Novationism is they were criticized in later centuries for not having icons and not venerating saints. And so I think that another aspect of them is they preserved some of these early Christian distinctives past that they were sort of like an anachronistic holdout of early Christian beliefs that lasted mm -hmm. until later centuries. So in later centuries, when icons are common and venerating saints is common, they look at the novationists and like, who are these heretics that don't venerate icons and stuff like that? And really, I think they're actually just preserving the earlier Christian practice. And so they, they, were, they were an aniconic iconoclastic sect and that and that and later centuries that set them apart from mainstream christianity well that's interesting isn't it you know i mean i think that um uh this is always a struggle there's been within the christian faith tradition right and it's playing out today um that's why we need to look at church history. You're right. There's, you know, I brought it up about the Donatists. They drive, they drove Augustine nuts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's clear that the Novations or no Novation himself drove. I mean, you know, this guy's possessed by a demon. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's, you know, and yet let's get into his uh, view of the Trinity because it's, yeah. it's probably the most, uh, most complete that we've dealt with so far.
Right. So um, Novation writes a work that's called On the Trinity, although it, it was actually probably originally called The Rule of Faith and only got the title On the Trinity later because the word Trinity actually never appears in the work. Um, but he's clearly talking about the Trinity. And what's also fascinating is he clearly wrote this against someone who believes what I believe. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, well, there's actually two heresies, right, in Novation's view. Um, you could be a modalist, right, and believe that Jesus is the incarnation of God the Father, right? And so there's just one God, right? And that one God, God incarnate in Jesus, and there's really no distinction between God the Father and God the Son. It's all just one person, right? And that's sort of uh, um, what was called either uh, no, no, Noetus was a famous teacher who taught this. It was also sometimes called Sibelianism, or sometimes it was called Monarchianism back in its early uh, in this early period. And Oneness Pentecostals, for the record, as far as I can tell, teach the exact same theology. Um, and they, they actually point that out. <laughs> they, they point out that they're, they're these early modalistic people that seem to have the same theology as Oneness Pentecostals. So if, you ever, if you've ever had an argument with a Oneness Pentecostal about the Trinity, which is, you know, maybe that happens more often in my life than it happens in other people's lives. Um, but, but is that basically that same, idea, I, uh, same idea that Jesus is the incarnation of God the Father? instead of um, the, the Logos or the Son of God. So that that's, famous modalist today is William Lane Craig. <laughs> he might be a partialist. I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I think that most Trinitarians in practice flirt with modalism quite often. When I hear when I hear Bishop Barron talk about the Trinity, he he sounds kind of modalistic. You're still me. sore about him. About I him. am sore about it, but I, I mean, when I, when a lot of modern Trinitarians, they'll talk about God himself or God came down and, you know, died on the cross for us and stuff like that. God himself, who's God himself, right? You know, they, they seem to have in mind that there's one person who is God and who kind of shows up as the father, kind of shows up as the son, and there's the Holy Spirit maybe too, right? Okay. But God himself came and died for us. If you're saying God himself came and died for us, you're a modalist. <laughs> I, I, I will so contend the best way to describe the Trinity is though insufficient is in negative terms. Yeah. Well, Jesus, Jesus is God, but he is not God the Father, and he's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but he is not God the Father, and he's not Jesus. God is God, but he is not Jesus, and he is not the Holy Spirit. That is a, probably the best way you could do it without going into modalism or into heresy. Well, that's very Augustinian of you, but you're skipping ahead 200 years. Uh, so. <laughs> I was Augustine before Augustine was cool. I'm that old. All right. So, so Novation's worried about modalism on one side. And he's worried about basically biblical Unitarianism on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. That the idea that Jesus is just a man, right? And that he is not the incarnation of the second person uh, of the Trinity. And at one point, Novation says that Jesus has been crucified between two thieves. On the one hand, he's being crucified uh, by modalism, and on the other hand, he's being crucified by uh, biblical Unitarianism, essentially. Although back in those days, it was either called dynamic monarchianism. So dynamic monarchianism means um, monarchy, The uh, saying that you're a monarchist uh, or a monarchian is basically one ruler or one source or one high God, right? It's basically the word Unitarian, right? 
mono-singular archie kind of is the word for God. So a, a one God person, right? A one ruler person, right? And there was two ways to be a monarchian. You could either believe Jesus was the incarnation of the one ruler, or you could believe that Jesus was a human and wasn't an incarnation of any God, and that he is subservient to the one God up in heaven, right? Like what I say. Um, and so those are the, the two thieves on, uh, that Jesus is being crucified between, and the truth is in the middle, right? And the truth is this idea of the Trinity. So um, I'll read through, here are some of the arguments just kind of in a rapid fire fashion of, uh, of what he, how he argues against biblical Unitarianism. Um, Jesus's weaknesses show his humanity, but even more his powers show his divinity. Just as he is the son of man, and therefore a man, he is the son of God, and therefore a God. In Hosea, God the Father says he will save them by God, and that other God, apart from God the Father, is Christ. God is Emmanuel, which is to say God with us. Isaiah prophesies that God will return and heal the people, which is Christ. You either have to believe he is the son of God incarnate, or that he's the father incarnate, and since the later is Sabellianism and heresy, it means he's the son of God incarnate. Various quotes in John show that he's the Logos made flesh from heaven, yada yada. Thomas calls him my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5. Uh, let's stop here. You really don't like the Gospel of John. All right, keep on going. I love the, I love the Gospel of John. I'm, I'm doing a series. I just talked with uh, Lydia McGrew on the Gospel of John. Uh, it, it was a great conversation. I've got some more conversations lined up on the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, I, I, I like it more than you might think. Romans 9.5 calls him God over all be blessed. That's not actually true, but you know, whatever. How can all things be through him and by him and for him if he's just a man? How can he be everywhere present to all people if he's just a man? If Christ is only a man, how is it that the things that the Father, Son, the Father does, the Son does likewise? when he cannot do works like the heavenly operations of God. If Christ is only a man, how is it that even the father has life in himself, so also has the son has life in himself? Not a particularly good argument. If Christ is only man, how does he say, I am the bread of eternal life which comes down from heaven? All right, if Christ is able to bring us immortality, he must be God. Um, if Christ was only man, how did he say before Abraham was, I am? For no man can be before uh, Abraham. How can Christ command the paraclete? If Christ received his glory after his forebears, he would have less glory than them unless he existed before them. All right. Um, if Christ is superior to angels and angels are sometimes called God, then surely Christ can be called God. That's actually something I agree with. If Moses and judges can be called God, then surely Jesus can. Also, for the record, Jacob, I'm going to throw a shout out to you. And this is something that came up in my conversation with uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, is that there are some people who do not think that there are any humans in the Old Testament who get called God. Um, but Jacob and most Jews will say there are a few instances in the Old Testament where the word God gets applied to humans. And for the record, Novation agrees with that. And he points out the exact same passages that Jacob and I would, where humans get called God. So we have novation on our side on that particular question. Anyway, if um, if Christ lost his flesh in death, then he must be more than just a man. Philippians 2 says that he's in the form of God and with not just the image of God, so he must be God. Christ is given the name that's above all names, which is obviously God. All right. Anyway, and you kind of get the idea. All right. So, um, like, let's see here. Uh, I'm going to read. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to read this quote 
because I think one thing that's important is to get an idea of how his trinity works. So I'm going to start by reading what he thinks about God the Father. So this is about God the Father. All right. Over all these things, he himself, that is God the Father, containing all things and having nothing vacant beyond himself, has left room for no superior God, such as some people conceive. Since indeed he himself has included all things in the bosom of perfect greatness and power, he is always intent upon his own work and pervading all things, moving all things, quickening all things, beholding all things, and so linking together discordant materials into the concord of all elements, that out of these unlike principles, one world is so established by a conspiring union that it can be no for, by no force be dissolved, saved when he alone who made it commands it to be dissolved for the purpose of bestowing other and greater things upon us. So we've had this idea before of other church fathers where there's the circles of heaven, right? Earth is sort of the lowest sphere, then there's like seven spheres, concentric spheres around earth, and then there's unbounded space, right? Beyond the spheres. And God is sort of the unbounded thing, right? And that's one of the proofs of monotheism, right? Athenagoras gave that proof. Well, there has to be something that's outside of everything else, right? And there can only be one thing outside of everything else. So therefore, there's one God that's outside of everything else. So Novation has that kind of idea. And also this idea, it's almost like panentheism, Luke Thompson. I'll give you a shout out, Luke Thompson, that it almost sounds like everything is inside God, right? and being sustained and generated and held together and ordered by God at all times. And if God were to turn off the light switch, it would disappear in an instant, right? Like everything in whom we live and move and have our being, that sort of idea that everything is inside God the Father, right? So he has this very transcendent kind of all permeating, all powerful God the Father. But God the Father is invisible and immortal, right? There are multiple passages where he quotes some passages actually that biblical Unitarians often quote against Trinitarians, like, you know, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent, right? Which is in the Gospel of John, one of our favorite verses, one of our favorite Gospels, where Jesus calls God the Father the only true God. And he has no problem with that, because in a certain sense, God the Father is the only true God, right? God the Father is above and beyond and actually superior to Jesus. So um, let's see here. I'm going to. Say, I don't think he says that. I think the only thing I read where he says about superiority is that Jesus is superior to the paraclete. Um, well, he, I mean, he thinks that, let's see here. Um, he thinks that the, the, the son is generated by the father and that the father is invisible, but the son is visible, right? right? And the father can't be contained at a particular place at a particular time because he's kind of everywhere all present, right? So you can't like contain him in a space, but the son can be contained in a space. So it's sort of like, you know, the father is super powerful, invisible, the source of everything everywhere present, but the son is like the image of God who kind of runs around and does things. Like, honestly, for the listeners of Paul Vanderclay, and I've said this before about other early church theologians, it's very much God one and God number two in Paul Vanderclay speak, right? In Paul Vanderclay-ism, uh, God number one is sort of the arena 
right? Who uh, is sort of everybody kind of who kind of runs the whole show. And God number two is an agent that you can interact with and talk to and that can be in a particular place, right? And Paul Vanderclay doesn't believe in two gods. He was more bringing that up when Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris were talking. They seem to be talking about two different kinds of gods, right? But I think that what what's really interesting is that in early Trinitarian theology, God number one was God the Father and God number two was Jesus, right? And, and that was actually the role that they played. Um, so let's see here. I want to read a quote also here. We'll probably wrap up sometime soon, but here, here's a quote um, from uh, uh, Novation about biblical Unitarians. But because heretics ever struggling against the truth are accustomed to prolong the controversy of pure tradition and Catholic faith, being offended against Christ because he is, moreover, asserted to be God by the scriptures also, and this is believed to be so by us, we must rightly that, that every heretical calumny, calumny may be removed from our faith, contend concerning the fact that Christ is God also, in such a way as that it may not uh, militate against the truth of scripture, for not yet against our faith, how there is there how there is declared to be one god by the scriptures and then how and how it is held and believed by us anyway so basically one thing that's interesting about novation is not only does he have this you know tr trinitarian belief and his, his beliefs honestly are pretty similar to tertullian's and that's not surprising we've already mentioned that tertullian was his biggest hero um, but he, he seems to take a harder line stance against people who disagree with him than we've seen in the early church fathers, right? He has a similar theology to Justin Martyr, but Justin Martyr said, hey, there's basically some biblical Unitarians in my church who think that Jesus is a man for men and not God incarnate. But, you know, they're in my church. I think they're wrong, but, it, you know, whatever, we get along, right? Um, uh, Justin Martyr didn't have a hardline exclusive stance on people who disagreed with him on this topic. But fast forward uh, almost 100 years, uh, but yeah, actually almost exactly 100 years after Justin Martyr, and we're starting to get the belief not only in some sort of proto-Trinitarianism, but that proto-Trinitarianism is required to be a Christian, right? So it's not just... It's not just the belief itself that is starting to evolve, but the importance of the belief and the centrality of the belief to the definition of who's a Christian and who's not is starting to change. And that it's starting to get more exclusive to the point where not only modalists are heretics, I'm fine calling modalists heretics, but, um, but also that the biblical Unitarians among us are starting to be treated as heretics too. All right, I've, I've got a couple more quotes that I think I want to flesh out his Trinitarianism a little more. This is from chapter 31. Thus, God the Father, the founder and creator of all things, who only knows no beginning, invisible, infinite, immortal, eternal, is one God, to whose greatness or majesty or power I would not say, no, I, I would not say nothing can be preferred, but nothing can be compared, of whom when he willed it, the Son, the Word, was born or generated. He then, when the Father willed it, proceeded from the Father, and he who was in the Father came forth from the Father, and he who was in the Father because he was of the Father was subsequently with the Father because he came forth from the Father. And this is this two-stage logos idea, right, which we've had before, where originally God in eternity past has the logos in his mind, 
right, are inside God the Father. And then at the will of God the Father, he kind of speaks out the Logos, right? And the Logos gets its own separate independent being outside of God the Father. Um, and this happens by the will of the Father. For the record, the Arians will maintain that Jesus was generated by the will of the Father, and that will become a heretical idea. The Trinitarians have to say that it was necessary that the Father generated the Son and not according to his will. So that's an Arian position, not a Trinitarian position. And that this happened at a particular point in time, seemingly, right? There was a time when the Logos was inside, and then when the Father willed it, he comes out. So there basically is a time when the sun was not, right? So this is actually, I would say it's it's honestly more similar to Arianism than, than it is to, to later Trinitarianism. And the distinctions I also want to point out between Arianism and Trinitarianism are very small, right? The, the distinctions between Trinitarianism and modalism are big. The distinctions between Trinitarianism and uh, biblical Unitarianism are big, but Arianism and Trinitarianism at this point in time are inside the same category, right? And only later will the distinctions between them become a big deal. And Novation says things that sound like a Trinitarian, and he says things that sound like an Arian, right? Because both of the, those things haven't been distinguished yet. Um, I, anyway, I'll pass it back. I've got one or two more quotes, but I've been talking for a while, so I'll, I'll, I'll pass you the buck. Oh, I, I, I feel like you did when you were with Father John Bear. I'm just, I, I'm just listening. Um, All right. Do you want to hear why Novation thinks that this isn't two gods? Because yeah. this is actually fascinating. Sure. So, you know, we, we've had this discussion before, right? Justin Martyr calls Jesus another god. Right. Um, Origen said that in some sense there's two gods, but in some sense there's one god. Athenagoras, I think, used the phrase another god or the second god, right? So we've had the logos called a second god multiple times. And one thing that the modalists and the biblical Unitarians have in common is that they do not like this talk of two gods, right? Mm -hmm. They think that the proto-Trinitarians sound like they have two gods. And both of them are like, we can only have one God. There are all these Old Testament passages about how God is one and there's only one God and et cetera. So you guys kind of sound polytheistic to us, right? That's the one thing that the modalists and the biblical Unitarians agree on when attacking the middle position. So here's his explanation of why this isn't two gods. And I think it's actually pretty fascinating. All right, so chapter 31. If he had not been begotten compared with him who was not begotten, as being found equal, they not being begotten would have reasonably been given the title two gods. So it's because they're not equal that they are not, if they were two equal gods, if the, if the father and the son were equal, that would be two gods. Anyway, I'll keep going. And thus Christ would have been the cause of two gods. Had he been formed without beginning as the father and he himself the beginning of all things as is the father, this would have meant that there were two beginnings and consequently would have shown us to believe in two gods also. Or if he also were not the son, but the father beginning from himself another son, reasonably as compared with the father and designated as great as he, he would have caused two fathers. And thus also he would have proved the existence of two gods. Had he been invisible as compared to the invisible and declared equal, he would have shown forth two invisibles, and thus he would have been proved himself to believe in two gods. If incomprehensible, if what other other attributes only belong to the Father, reasonably we say, he would have given rise to the allegation of two gods. 
and these uh, as these people feign. But now, whatever he is, he is not of himself, because he is not unborn, but he is of the Father. Because he is begotten, whether as being the word, or whether as being the power, or wisdom, or light, or being the Son, or whatever of these, he is not any of these of the source, as we have already said before, than from the Father, owing his origin to the Father. He could not make a disagreement in the divinity by the number of two gods, since he gathered his beginning by being born of him who is one God. So the reason why there aren't two gods is there's only one source, right? There's only one God that begets things, right? He says, if, Jesus, if the son had been able to beget his own son, right, then there would be two fathers, there would be two sources, and that would count as two gods. And if there was two things that were invisible, that would count as two gods. If there were two things that were incomprehensible, that would count as two gods, right? But because the son doesn't have all of the characteristics of the father and has his source in the father and isn't unbounded like the father, this is why he doesn't actually count as God. In, so he basically has two definitions of the word God is how I would explain it right? Jesus is divine, but he isn't an almighty God. Only, uh, only the person who is the source of everything counts as the almighty God, and that's God the Father. So the reason why he's a monotheist is not that the Trinity somehow counts as one God, or not that the Father, Son, and Spirit are somehow one God together, like a later Trinitarian will say. The reason why he's a monotheist is there's only one source, there's only one invisible, there's only one cause of everything, and that's God the Father, and that's what counts as there being a God in the highest sense of the word, right? So in some sense, he's a Unitarian, kind of, actually, right? Because there's a unipersonal super God, right, who generates his image, who is God in a certain sense, but also not God in a higher sense of the word, right? And then I have one last quote that kind of finishes that train of thought. And still, nevertheless, the Father is proved to be one God, while by degrees and reciprocal transfer, that majesty and divinity are again returned and reflected as sent by the Son himself to the Father who had given them, so that reasonably God the Father is God of all, and the source also of his Son himself, who he begot as Lord. Moreover, the Son of God of all else, because God the Father put, him, put before him all he begot, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of tongue twister. Thus, the mediator of God and men, Christ Jesus, having the power of every creature subjected to him by his own father, inasmuch as he is God, with every creature subdued to him, found at one with his father God, has by abiding in that condition that he moreover has was heard, briefly proved God his father to be the one and only true God. So because Jesus gives everything over to God the Father, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how the Son kind of conquers all principalities and powers and brings everything in subjection to the Son. And then the Son in the final eschaton gives everything over to God the Father so that everything is subjected to God the Father, that God might be all in all. That's like 1 Corinthians verse 30 or 40 or something like that, right? That's how he says that we can see that there's really only one true God because Jesus in some sense, everything gets subjected to Jesus, but in another sense, even Jesus gets subjected to God. So that's why there's only one God, right? And so the one God is not actually Jesus. The one God is only God the Father. So there, 
like in some sense he sounds like a trinitarian and in some sense he kind of sounds like an arian or, or or not quite anything that that's present today so anyway i'll so, so, so what what do you think of my analysis i guess as good a job as Novation did on the Trinity in some senses, right? Describing the attributes of God the Father, the attributes of God the Son, and the attributes of the Holy Spirit, who is God. You still don't have that, you know, we're going to have to wait for a while. Um, but it's clear that if you went, if you poked Novation, he would say he was a Trinitarian. He would say he would not say he's a biblical unitarian. Right. He clearly is not. <laughs> and he okay. clearly does not like that belief. Right. So, but I think because the Trinity is, is such a difficult concept that when you try to explain it, you can't help explaining it either as a modalist or a unitarian. Yeah. Okay. Because what you know, the one thing that the early church fathers and Christians today don't want to be accused of is being polytheists. Right. Right. And so how can you poke a Christian? Muslims poke a Christian pretty well. You believe in three gods. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I don't. I believe in one God. Well, who's Jesus? Well, he's God. Who's the Holy Spirit? Well, he's God. Well, then you believe in three gods. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to go back to the negative of Augustine. That's the best way to explain. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's interesting that Novation doesn't quite go that Augustinian route. When he's being poked about being a polytheist, he basically says, well, God the Father is really actually almighty and over right. the Son and over the Spirit. So in a certain sense, he's the only one that counts as God in the higher sense of the word. The Son and the Spirit are God in a lesser sense of the word. It's really, right. he basically has two definitions of God. There's super God and pretty God, right? And only God the Father is super God and the Son and the Spirit are. No, he's got are two God. definitions to one, kick the biblical Unitarians. And then when he's being called a polytheist, he sort of goes into a, what did Richard Nixon say? A limited purpose hangout. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, basically, oh, no. No, look over here. God the Father is God. Okay. Um, and the Unitarian, if he was Unitarian was around, say, well, thanks for adopting my position. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's like here's a quote from the Athanasian Creed, which was not written by Athanasius for the record. But anyway, th this is sort of reflecting Augustinian Trinitarianism. Mm -hmm. So, likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty, right? Novation would be like, no, that's not quite right. There is one almighty and that's God the Father, right? God the Father is almighty. The Son isn't almighty because he's subordinate to God the Father. So there, there is one almighty. There aren't three almighties, but that's because only the Father is almighty, not because all three of them are almighty, but yet somehow one almighty together, right? That sort of later Trinitarian dance of, yes, there's three in one sense, but yes, there's one in another sense. Novation isn't doing that dance yet, even though in many ways he is pretty similar to later Trinitarianism. Well, he's, he's starting to dance. He's starting to dance. He's starting to dance. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I still say a biblical Unitarian, how can a man save us? But that's, you know, that's hey, something we can go into. God can save us through a man. How about that? <laughs> I and the Father are one. Yeah. And and we should and and Jesus prays that we will be one just as his father and him are one. Yeah. yeah. Actually, for the record, Novation makes that the exact same point I just made right? He says the modalists try and say, you can see that the father and the son are the same when Jesus says, I and the father are one. But Novation says, no, he meant a moral unity. He meant cooperative unity. And he, and then he said, he makes the exact same point I just made that Jesus prays that all Christians might yeah. be one as his father and him are one. And so it's a moral cooperative unity, not a ontological unity i could pull at the quote but it, it's in there i i actually noticed that so well, i can i i, I can <laughs> i agree that. with novation on that yeah. one I, I think we can expect after we uh put this video up that anselman will have a lot of correction for both you and i eh, well anselman already knows what i think <laughs> very good well yeah. if there's not anything else I, yeah was, so so next week, uh, this week, we, we tried to steel man the, the anti-biblical Unitarian position and yeah. give it a, its pedestal. Next week, we'll be looking at uh, Paul, or next episode, whenever that comes out, we'll look at Paula Samosata, the, the, the great biblical Unitarian Bishop of Antioch, um, and uh, what little we know about him. So uh, tune in for next time, everybody. Take care, guys.